Well, we've been in the Gospel of Mark all year, and we remain there today in chapter 14. We've got a lot of verses to cover today, so if you'll be looking at Mark 14, we'll read those in just a moment. We are in what we call the Passion Week. That is the last week of Jesus' earthly life. Now, normally we use the word passion to refer to very strong emotions, emotions that almost cannot be controlled. But that is not, of course, the way we are using the word passion when we are talking about the life of Jesus. Passion comes from the Latin word for suffer. And so we are talking about the suffering and ultimately the death of Jesus Christ. This one week in the life of Jesus takes up a large portion of Mark's gospel. We've actually been in this week all the way back to chapter 11, where we looked at the triumphal entry. So from 11 to 16, it's all about this last week of Jesus' life. And in these last three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, it is all about the last few days from Wednesday to Sunday in the life of Jesus. Now, most of you know the broader details. You are familiar with the arrest in the garden You've read about the multiple trials that Jesus endured before various Roman officials. You know about the denial of Peter and then the painful death of Christ on Calvary alongside two true criminals. You know that he was buried, even as we have just heard recited. You know that his body was placed in a borrowed tomb only to have him arise a few days after that. But while you may know the facts, or at least you've heard them multiple times before, you may not fully understand the theological and practical implications from those facts. As is so often the case, we have to be careful that we don't become so comfortable with the basic facts of the week of passion that we lose sight of the theological meaning behind them and the practical ongoing implications for our daily lives. Now, there are some other events in this week that maybe you're not as familiar with. You've probably heard them before, but not as often as you do those basics. That would describe the events that we are going to look at this morning, events that occurred prior to His suffering And so I'm going to call this a prelude to the passion. Now, just because these events are a prelude does not mean that they are not important. In fact, some of them are absolutely necessary. That is, they must take place in order for the remainder of Passion Week to go as it does. A prelude is an action or event serving as an introduction to something that is more important. We know this word primarily from musical terms. That is, there is a prelude before the concert or even a prelude before the worship service. It is a piece of music that is played before the actual event begins. And as such, we often ignore it, to be quite honest. We sometimes just talk while the prelude is going on and don't pay attention to the fact that someone is playing something. I want to caution you this morning, even though we are talking about a prelude to the passion, not to ignore it. It is not the main event, I'll acknowledge that. There are bigger events that are going to happen from Thursday through Sunday. But that does not mean that these particular events are not important. Because we are going to be introduced here to a woman who is a tremendous follower of Christ and gives him an extravagant and expensive gift, an anointing of his body, 
a prelude to his death. And then we are going to see a betrayer of Christ, a man whose name is still, even after all of these years, his name is still synonymous with treachery. And then we're going to talk about the disciples, men who were in an intimate setting, a fellowship meal with Christ, just hours before all of them would abandon him. So these events are a prelude to the passion, and yet they are still important. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. The disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to one another, or to say one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Three events, three circumstances that 
combined give us a prelude to the passion. The first is an encounter with an unnamed woman, and we see her here, her generous anointing. I'm going to skip the first couple of verses just for a few moments. We will come back to them. But Mark is using what is familiar to us by now, and that is this sandwich technique. He is placing this generous anointing from this unnamed woman in the middle of the plot with Judas and the religious authorities to betray and ultimately arrest Jesus. In this case, he is doing so to show us the vast contrast between these two encounters, between this woman who pours out this costly perfume as an extravagant gift of love, and yet this betrayer, one of the twelve who is going to betray Jesus for a relatively small amount of money. We are back in Bethany in this episode, a village about two miles outside of Jerusalem. We are in the home of a man by the name of Simon the leper, whom we do not know. We know nothing else about this man, though Mark is obviously writing to an audience that would have known who he was. All we know is that he used to be a leper. We know that because he can't currently be a leper or he wouldn't be eating with them in the house. That would not have taken place. Perhaps he is a man whom Jesus had healed of his leprosy in the past, but we simply don't know. What we do know is that during a meal with his disciples, while they are reclining at table, that was the customary posture for a meal. They did not do it as we do. In fact, no kid in the first century ever had his mom say to him, sit up at the table while you eat, because they didn't sit up at the table. They reclined on their elbow, and that is what they are doing here when this woman comes into the dinner. The other Gospels appear to name her as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who of course also lived at Bethany, but Mark chooses to leave her nameless. The fact that she interrupts this meal was strange enough. Women would not have disrupted a meal in this manner, in that culture, unless they were there to serve food, and she has not come to serve food. She has come to serve Christ. She brings with her some nard, which was an expensive and sweet-smelling oil extracted from the root of an Indian herb. The cost of this is told us by Mark, some 300 denarii, and we know that a denarii was a day's wage. So this is roughly an annual salary. This is what someone would have made in that time for the entire year. Now, we know perfume is still expensive, but we would not spend a year's salary on a bottle of perfume. It is possible that this is a family heirloom, something that would have been passed down from mother to daughter, from generation to generation. And she takes this flask and she breaks the neck of it, ensuring that it will never be used for anything else, and she pours the entirety of its contents on the head of Jesus. And while all of this seems rather strange to us, it was not so at that time. An anointing was used on several different occasions, some public and some formal and some private like this. But the disciples were not happy not about the anointing. The anointing itself was not the problem. It was the generosity, the extravagance of the anointing that bothered them. 
And so they were upset, and they began to scold this woman for her extravagance. She wasted all of this expensive oil, which could have been sold in their minds to help the poor. Now, it was part of the custom at Passover to give gifts to the poor. And so this was indeed on their minds, that this could have been sold and would have gone a long way in contributing to the poverty in Jerusalem. Now, whether they were genuinely concerned about the poor or had other motives, we really can't say. All we know is that their reaction to her anointing demeaned her, it demeaned her gift, and it actually demeaned Christ himself. In their minds, even Jesus was not worthy of such an elaborate and expensive gesture. It's all right to give modestly to Christ, that's still the opinion today, It's all right to give modestly to the kingdom of God, but nobody should give in such an extravagant manner. This is a waste. And any church leader has surely heard the charge. Why did the church spend so much money on this? Why did they have to spend all that money on that? Why couldn't we have done it cheaper and used the rest of the money for ministry? In fact, let me just bring it to our context. I mean, we just voted last week to spend $143,000 on HVAC repair and equipment and replacement, $143,000 that none of us wanted to spend in that manner, except maybe the 100-plus kids that are in that building for daycare every single day and their teachers. But outside of them, none of us wanted to spend that money that way. We certainly wanted to spend it in other ways, primarily for ministry, but we were forced to do that. I remind you that ministry does take buildings, and buildings cost money not only to build, but to keep up. And so the disciples deemed her gift wasteful and scolded her for it. And yet Jesus has an entirely different reaction. He scolds them. Look at verse 6. He says to them, she has done a beautiful thing for me. The two perspectives that we find here on this generous anointing could not have been more directly opposed to one another. And he follows up that statement by saying, you always have the poor with you, which is not a demeaning of the poor. Jesus is not giving a command not to help the poor. He is simply saying that you will always have an opportunity to help the poor, and you ought to take advantage of it. And by the way, I think our church does a very good job through various ministries in this church of doing just that. So he is not saying don't do it. The comparison is between always and not always. You will always have opportunities to help the poor. But that is not true when it came to him. He will not always be with them. And therefore, this woman has done a generous thing, an extravagant gift being poured out over his head, that only now did she have that opportunity. So his wording of commendation is very similar to what we saw in the widow at the temple. You remember that story, what we call the widow's might? The woman who was commended by Jesus for giving these two small coins that in all actuality were basically worthless. And yet Jesus says she's given more than everybody else. And the wording is very similar to what we find here. So that no gift is too small when it is given with the right motives. 
And no gift is wasted, no matter how large it might be, when the same thing is true, when it is given to God with right motives. Her generous gift was an expression of her love for Jesus. Now, we've been studying on, in life groups on Sunday nights a book that deals with the communicable attributes of God. Communicable attributes are those attributes that God has that we also can and should have. Not to the same degree, of course, but we should have those same things. And so last week, one of the ones we looked at was the, the communicable attribute of love. God is love, and therefore God loves us. And because God loves us, we then love Him, and we express that love by loving others. The great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus sums up the law and the prophets with those two statements. This woman is giving us a picture of what lavish and extravagant love of God looks like. She is giving this family heirloom, this priceless gift, and she is pouring it on the head of Jesus as an expression of her love. He was worth that. He is of such immeasurable worth that this gift is clearly not wasteful. In fact, this is worship. She has pictured what will soon take place, the anointing of Jesus' body for burial. Now, I don't think that she knew all of this. I don't think she understood all that was going to transpire, and I don't think she was doing this intentionally for that purpose, but she is giving us a picture of what will happen to the body of Jesus in the coming days. And as a result, she will be remembered, Jesus says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed. She will be remembered for her extravagant and generous anointing of his body. And the fact that we are studying her story this morning tells us that Jesus' prediction was indeed accurate. Here was a devoted follower of Christ who is remembered for all of history for this one extravagant and generous anointing of Jesus. Others saw it as wasteful. Jesus says it was a worthy act, worthy of a legacy for her. Now, it's encouraging to see that one act of kindness can be remembered for so long. It's encouraging to know that one good deed can be remembered. But the opposite is also true, isn't it? If that is true, it means that one unkind act, one bad choice, one terrible decision can mark us for the rest of our lives. And that is why from a generous anointing, we go to a treacherous betrayal. Judas is so synonymous with betrayal that even to this day, nobody names their kid Judas. Now, you might come up to me afterwards and give me an exception. You might know someone who knows someone who named their kid Judas. I don't, and I've never heard of it, but there might be an exception out there. But the point is that this name is so tarnished by this one act that not only do we not name our kids that, we still use the name to talk about anybody who betrays their friends or their families. We call them a Judas. So back in verse 1, we are given the time. We are just before Passover. There are some chronological difficulties reconciling the way Mark and the other synoptic gospels put it with what, the way John writes his version. 
which I am not going to go into this morning. I simply acknowledge that so that you know that I know. But we are just going to assume that we are on Wednesday here. We are on Wednesday of Passion Week when this plot is being hatched. They are trying to arrest and ultimately kill Jesus. And then the next episode we are dealing with will be on Thursday night when they are celebrating the Passover meal. Now, we must also remember that they counted their days differently than we do. For the Jews, a day began at sundown. So a day was sundown to sundown, not like we do it from morning to the next morning. So it is Passover, the annual festival where tens of thousands of people would throng to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the liberation from Egyptian bondage. Then there was the festival of unleavened bread or the feast of unleavened bread. This lasted for an entire week. This was where they had to remove all of the yeast or leaven from their homes. And therefore they ate unleavened bread for the, for the week, bread that had not risen And this was in remembrance of how they left Egypt in haste, going so urgently that they did not have time to allow the dough to rise. They would sacrifice an unblemished male lamb or goat on the 14th of Nisan. That was the month. And then they would eat that animal on the next day at sundown. Passover could only be celebrated within the walls of Jerusalem. It was not permitted anywhere else. And that is why so many people would come to Jerusalem and the population of that city would rise drastically. Now, in practice, the term Passover and unleavened bread were sort of merged together. So sometimes the word Passover refers to the one day, and sometimes it speaks of the entire week-long celebration. But at this point on Wednesday, the religious leaders had heard and had enough. They were ready to arrest Jesus and seek to have him killed. But they did not want to do it during the feast because they feared the popularity of Jesus would would allow an uprising or a riot among the people. And Rome was always leery when these festivals were in town, making sure that no such uprisings occurred. And yet Judas comes to them. And he apparently accelerates their timetable. With his help, they are willing to go ahead and seek the arrest and death of Jesus even during the festival. Now, why Judas betrays Jesus remains somewhat a mystery for us. Certainly, there was a financial incentive. They agreed to pay him, and the other gospel writers tell us that this is 30 pieces of silver. According to Exodus, that is the price to be paid for a slave who is accidentally gored to death. So this is the price of a servant. And here is contrast number one. This woman that we've just talked about pours out a year's salary on the head of Jesus. And yet Judas, one of the twelve, betrays him for a sum much smaller than that. Perhaps her extravagance sent Judas over the edge. Since we know that he was the treasurer of the group, and John tells us that he was also a thief. So we know there was a financial incentive, but is that the only reason? It is possible that Judas has become disillusioned with the direction of the kingdom. We know that all of the disciples were expecting greatness. They've argued about that. They vied for the positions of greatness in the kingdom of God. So is Judas finally putting the pieces together and realizing that greatness is not what is going to happen? Jesus has talked a lot about suffering. 
And maybe Judas is disillusioned about the future and doesn't want to suffer with Jesus. If he's not going to be great in the kingdom, then why suffer at all? The truth is all of the texts concerning the motives behind the betrayal are silent, and therefore we must be content to only guess. But whatever the overriding motives, the rulers were happy to have his help, and Judas now actively looks for an opportunity to put his treacherous plan into place. But none of this betrayal is hidden from the eyes of Jesus. He is fully aware of what Judas is doing behind the scenes. You know, if we happen to have the unfortunate circumstance of being betrayed by a friend or a family member, maybe a coworker, maybe betrayed by our lights, who knows? It takes us by surprise. We don't see it coming, and therefore we are shocked. But Jesus is not surprised. He does, in fact, see it coming. Remember, he's been talking about all of this prior to them even getting to Jerusalem. He's been telling them what is going to happen. So if we drop down to verses 17 through 21, the disciples are now eating the Passover meal with Jesus. We will come back to the meal itself in our third point, but suffice it to say, Jesus interrupts the normal flow of the Passover meal, changing this Passover meal radically, transforming it into something we'll talk about in just a moment, but he does so with a shocking announcement. There is a betrayer in their midst. This is the kind of statement that we would say sent a chill throughout the room. And there is no more intimate setting to do this. This was not just some people having a dinner. Meals were intimate occasions, and specifically this Passover meal would have been. So Jesus never specifically identifies who it is, though he does narrow it down. First of all, he says, there is a betrayer among us. And then he clarifies and says, it is one of the twelve. I've always found it interesting that after this shocking announcement, the disciples are grieved. That part I don't find shocking. I realize that that's what they would do. That's what any of us would do. But the thing that surprises me is their self-reflection. They begin to ask one after another, is it I? I am confident that that is not how we would respond to this shocking announcement. I think instead of asking, is it going to be me, I think most of us would point fingers at somebody else. I knew it. In fact, I know who it is. It's so-and-so. I've seen the way they've acted. I've seen what some of the things they've said. I've known it all along. I never really thought he was with us. But they don't do that. They ask one after another, is it I? Which tells me after all of these years of ministry that Judas acted and talked like all of the other 11. There was nothing distinguishing between him and the others that led them to point their fingers and say, it must be Judas, which tells me it is possible to be close to Jesus. In fact, it is possible to be very close to Jesus and yet not be truly faithful, which is an ominous warning for all of us. Not only does Jesus know about the betrayal, but he understands that it must be this way. God's plan of salvation is, in fact, unfolding, but it is unfolding through this treacherous betrayal. 
And yet at the same time, this does not absolve Judas of his guilt. He will be held responsible for his actions. This is one of the clearest statements in Scripture about the truth and the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Jesus declares that both of these things are true. It must happen this way. This is God's plan. But at the same time, Judas is going to pay for the decision that he is making. And Judas's, or Jesus' comments should also put to rest any notion that Judas repented of his sin and was saved and would therefore be in heaven. There are still those who want to believe that because of his actions afterwards, his returning of the money, and his hanging himself remorsefully, that this is repentance. And we have a hard time distinguishing between repentance and remorse. I think Judas was remorseful. I don't think he repented and was forgiven because I think Jesus' statement rules that out. It would have been better for him had he not been born. Like I said, there is a huge contrast here in these first two preludes to the passion. A woman who graciously and generously anoints Jesus compared to one of his own, one of the twelve, who betrays him with a kiss. Both acts are remembered forever. Both acts are proclaimed where the gospel is proclaimed, and yet for very different reasons. Well, the final episode that we look at this morning, the final prelude to the passion for our subject today is the Passover meal itself and how Jesus transforms this meal. He turns this into a transformative meal. Our story of the Passover meal begins with the preparations needed for it. The city is crowded, and so the question becomes, where are the disciples going to celebrate the Passover with Jesus? Where are they going to find a place to gather together, especially given not only the size of the crowd in the city, but the size of their crowd, the number of people that are going to be at this particular meal? And so they come to Jesus and ask Him about the preparations, and as always, Jesus has an answer. And He sends two of the disciples on an errand to make the necessary arrangements. Now, the wording and the scenario is also very similar to another episode that we've seen, the, the sending of the disciples ahead of time before the triumphal entry to find an animal on which Jesus could ride into the city. And so here again, the question comes up, is this divine foreknowledge on the part of Jesus that He knows all of this because He's divine? Or has He prearranged this with this particular man behind the scenes? Either is certainly possible. Perhaps a clandestine meeting was necessary to avoid an arrest before the time. And a man carrying a water jug would have stood out because that was not what a man would have done in that time. This was something that a woman would have done, perhaps a slave, but this man would have stood out in the streets. The meal began at sundown on the 15th of Nisan, in this case on a Thursday evening. It would have lasted until midnight with multiple courses amid conversation all along the way. There would have been four different cups of wine served, and the eldest male in the family gathering would have been explaining all of this. All of the courses and all of the cups of wine would have been explained along the way. Why were they doing this? In fact, at one point in the meal, the youngest child in the room would have asked, why is this night different from other nights? And the father, the head of the household, would have explained what they were doing. 
And so this meal is progressing along just as expected. They've all done this before. This was not their first Passover. They were mostly Jews who had been raised in this manner. In fact, all of them were. And therefore, they would have, they would have gone over this countless times. But this one was different. Because in the midst of this meal, Jesus announces not only his betrayer, but then he transforms the meal into something entirely different, a meal that we still commemorate to this day every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so he takes the bread and proclaims that the bread is his body, which will be given for them. There has, of course, always been debate as to exactly what he means by that. Is that to be taken literal? That is, somehow mystically and miraculously the bread is transformed into his literal body? Or is this symbolic? That is, Jesus is saying, this is a symbol of my body. Perhaps it's somewhere in between those two things. We certainly do not take it literally. We lean more to the symbolic side. But the point here is that he is picturing for them what he is about to do on their behalf. And then he takes the cup, and this is probably the third cup of wine during this Passover meal, and he declares this to be the blood of the new covenant. Covenants or agreements were between two parties, and the covenants we're talking about were between God and humans. There are many or several at least covenants in the Old Testament between God and Israel, and these were often ratified by blood. And they were always and repeatedly broken by the people. And so an animal would be sacrificed and the blood of that animal would be used to ratify the covenant. Jesus here declares that his blood will now be the ratifying blood of this new covenant. His blood will seal this new agreement. And this covenant will not be broken as they've been broken in the past. Because God will see to it that it's not, which is why this is a covenant of grace. This is what Jeremiah was in part prophesying about in Jeremiah chapter 31, a passage that I asked Scott to read earlier in the service, and he did not read it. He got so excited about the news from our missionaries that he skipped over the Scriptures, which is perfectly fine. But Jeremiah, in part, in chapter 31, is looking forward to this very scene that we are looking at this morning with this new covenant ratified by the blood of Jesus. And then Jesus refuses to take the fourth cup. He does not lift the fourth cup of the Passover. He says this fourth cup of consummation must await the messianic banquet of the future Another reminder, another clear statement that Jesus knows that his death is not the end, that he will rise again, that he will ascend into heaven, and then he will come back in the future and rejoice with not only these disciples but with all of his children in taking that fourth cup of the Passover, signifying the consummation of his kingdom. This meal was then concluded by the singing of a hymn. By the way, that word is not there so you can have a staunch argument as to what we ought to sing in church. It doesn't say they concluded with a hymn because it was a hymn and not a praise course. That's not what it means. It's referring to the Psalms. And as the Passover meal was completed, they would sing Psalm 115 through 118. 
And so as they leave this Passover meal and head to the Mount of Olives, these are the last words of Psalm 118. This is the last thing they would have sung as they concluded that night. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And that would have completed their celebration of this annual Passover meal. But as I said, Jesus transforms this meal into what we now call the Lord's Supper and instructs us to continue this tradition and to continue this celebration. But we do not look back to the exodus from Egypt. When we gather together for the Lord's Supper, our primary concern is not a celebration of that miraculous intervention of God, whereby He allowed the slaves of Israel to leave Egypt and be set free. Instead, we look back to our own exodus, our own deliverance, not from a country or literal slavery, but our exodus, our deliverance from sin and the sacrifice that Jesus made to make that possible. And then, of course, the resurrection that sealed all of that. And finally then to His return to take us to be with Him. That is what we as believers are doing when we eat that small piece of bread. That is what we are doing when we drink that thumble-filled cup of juice. We are remembering our exodus from sin in the past. And we are looking forward to our future deliverance whereby we will live with Christ forever. But before I close... I want to glance forward to what we will see in the coming weeks in order to make a point. We've seen that around this table, as they are celebrating the Passover meal, Judas is there. We don't know exactly when he left, but Judas is there. He is the betrayer, the one whose name still remains synonymous with treachery and deceit. But by dawn of Friday, again, we are on Thursday night, nearing midnight, But by dawn on Friday, just a few hours after this event, all of the disciples will forsake Jesus and flee. All of them will abandon him. We could actually say all of them will betray him in one sense of the word. Not just Judas, but every last one of them will betray him. So sitting around this table is the one we call the betrayer. And the rest are all cowards who will flee and forsake Jesus, which means this is a table of grace. It is not a table of merit. It was a table of grace then. It remains a table of grace now. And yet in spite of that truth, many today, perhaps even most, still try to come to God with their merits, with their resume, It's as if God is at the door, and as they are desiring to come in, they print out their resume telling God all of the great things that they've done, all of the good deeds that they have accomplished, and all of the sins that they have avoided, and thereby expect that God is going to allow them in. After all, their resume is better than most. But the fact that this is a table of grace means that your resume is not important. 
his resume is. He has done everything for you to have fellowship with him, meaning that his blood can forgive you of your sins and his righteousness can become yours. But you must decide. Will you respond in faith and then in love like this woman whom we've talked about this morning? who graciously and extravagantly poured out this oil over the head of Jesus? Or will you turn away and betray your opportunity to be delivered from sin and death and live with Christ forever? Indeed, one choice, one action, one decision can be remembered forever. And your decision as it relates to Christ will have eternal consequences. So decide wisely. Let me pray.